It started with a, the call to follow, that we're called to follow Jesus, and then a called uh, that we're called to go out into the world and share the good news. And tonight uh, is that we are called to suffer. And if you'd known that, you might not have shown up tonight, right? If you'd known that's where we were going tonight, the call uh, to suffer, that's a little baffling for some of us because most of us avoid suffering, if at all possible. I, I mean, when you look at suffering, that you want to undergo pain and distress and hardship, um, no thanks. I don't want to have anything to do with that if I can help it. Suffering is not something that we sign up for or that we eagerly embrace into our lives, and yet all of us know to some degree or another what it means to suffer, physically or emotionally or spiritually. We know what it means to suffer as part of this broken world at home, at work, in our relationships. Pain and suffering are part of what it means for us to live as human beings in this broken world. We know that, even if we don't like it. But to be called to suffer, what does that mean? We're going to talk about that tonight. Let us pray. Lord, I pray that you would open our ears to hear and our hearts to receive your word to us, that it would take hold of us and transform us. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This particular week uh, begins uh, a look at the second missionary journey of Paul. Here's part of the timeline of that. We're kind of up here at the top in AD 50. And uh, this second missionary journey lasts probably three years or so. It begins at the end of the Jerusalem Council. The Jerusalem Council was called uh, to address what really is probably the first big uh, division or conflict within the early church. And the conflict was about circumcision, about whether or not male Gentile believers, those who had uh, said that they would follow Jesus, whether they needed to be circumcised as all of the Jewish men did, as all the Jewish boys did. It was part of the covenant. You may remember that circumcision was the sign of the covenant, that outward invisible sign that God established with Abraham and Abraham's descendants. That's how they would know that they belonged to God. And Paul believed and argued that Christ had initiated a new covenant, a covenant whose outward invisible sign was baptism, a new covenant between God and humanity for Jew and Gentile, for male and female, for all people, a new covenant based on trust in the work of Jesus, not on upholding the law of Moses. It was about surrendering yourself to this, uh, this person, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, the promise uh, that we have and who Jesus is as the Messiah. For Paul, Christ initiates this new covenant, which means that this old covenant, upholding this particular part of the old covenant for the new people, wasn't necessary. This council met because the people in the early church were divided on the issue. Can you imagine anyone in the church being divided on an issue? Right. Uh, insert eye roll here, right? That's kind of how that, that works. And so trusting in Christ uh, became the way that we are marked and set apart. And, and then being marked in baptism and set apart, believers 
offer their lives to live a life worthy of being called by God. So the sides presented their cases to the Jerusalem council, and ultimately the Jerusalem council, a group of elders and and, uh, people in the church, agreed with this, affirming that circumcision was not a requirement for Gentile believers to be saved and to be recognized as full disciples of Jesus Christ. And so after that Jerusalem council, uh, Paul sets off on his second missionary journey. You may remember that on his first missionary journey, Barnabas was with them. We love Barnabas, the great encourager. Paul and Barnabas had journeyed together. They reached this point in their relationship together and in the work that God has them to do. And Barnabas wanted to bring John Mark with them on this second journey. And Paul said, no way. John Mark deserted us during the first journey. I'm not willing to have him come and be part of this second journey. Barnabas said, I need to be with John Mark. So Paul and Barnabas at this point split paths and went their own ways. Barnabas took John Mark, and they ended up going to Cyprus. Paul took Silas, who uh, the Jerusalem council had appointed as, as one of the prophets and leaders in the church to help spread the word about the decision of the Jerusalem council. So Paul and Silas uh, left for the second missionary journey. I, I think it's important for us to understand that both Paul and Barnabas, and Barnabas still had their hearts in the right place. They still wanted and longed to share the good news of Jesus Christ with the world. And yet, at that particular juncture, they needed to go their own ways in order to be able to do that. It's hard and painful when when we have to go a separate way to accomplish the same goal. We know later on, Paul would write favorably about Barnabas and about John Mark. So we know that even though they split ways at this point, that at some point they were reconciled to one another. They were reconciled to the work that each had done, uh, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. So you have this map. And so the Jerusalem Council had been held here, and they had been back in Syrian Antioch, which was where Paul's home church was. They began the second journey, kind of going back to some of the churches they had been the first time, where they had planted uh, the word of God and and started churches. They were headed basically in this westerly uh, way, uh, something that they probably were headed toward Ephesus, but were kept from going there. Then they tried to go north to Bithynia, and they were kept from going there. We don't know exactly what it was that the Spirit did that, that kept them from going those places, but this original uh, destination wasn't where they intended to go, but it's where the Spirit led them. And they ended up then on this journey, ultimately taking the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, into Europe, into what we would know as Greece, um, and, and ended in, or at this particular point, uh, ended up in Philippi for a while. We know that in Derby, back at the beginning of the journey, they picked up Timothy, And Paul writes a couple of letters to Timothy that are part of our scripture. So Timothy was on this second journey with them as well. At some point in the journey, uh, the the writing shifts and we we believe that Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles, was also with them. So you can imagine that they're together 
traveling through these cities, telling of the result of the Jerusalem Council, but also continuing to meet with people, continuing to tell them about the good news of Jesus Christ, the salvation and the freedom and the life, the living water that Jesus offers to us. Here is the account of them being kept from going where they were intended. They, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. This would be Asia Minor. When they had come opposite Mysa, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysa, they went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision. There stood a man of Macedonia pleading with him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, we immediately tried to cross over to Macedonia, being convinced that God had called us to proclaim the good news to them. So that is where they went. One day, uh, so they went to Philippi, and their first encounter in Philippi was actually on the banks of a river. Nick, I love that you sang that song today. Uh, In the places where there weren't enough Jewish people to make a synagogue, they needed 10 Jewish men to be able to um, form a a synagogue. When there weren't enough people to form a synagogue, they would often meet by the river to worship and to pray. And so that's where Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke went to the river. And one of their first encounters was with a woman named Lydia, who was a her profession was to sell purple cloth, which was very expensive. It was, uh, the dye to make the purple cloth was very um, difficult to find and to procure, and that was her profession. They encountered her at the river and shared with her the good news of Jesus Christ, and it says that Lydia and her family were baptized and became part of the believers, part of the body of believers. So the group stayed on in in that place. Lydia, you will hear of later, she became an important part of their ministry and an important contact for them there in Philippi. But as they continued, uh, after several days, one day as we were going to the place of prayer, which would be down by the river, we met a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners a great deal of money by fortune-telling. While she followed Paul and us, she would cry out, These men are slaves of the Most High God who proclaim to you a way of salvation. She kept doing this for many days. But Paul, very much annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I order you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Now, it's a little bit contradictory. She's naming who they are following, and yet she's doing so in a way that's distracting them from the work that they're called to do. She's doing so because she's being manipulated by the people who own her as a way of using her in in other ways to tell people's fortune and to make money, uh, using her and uh, putting her in a not very good position. And so Paul finally recognizes this and calls that spirit out of her. And you would think that that would be great reason to rejoice that this girl, this young girl had been set free that she now had an opportunity to live a a full life. She had an opportunity to uh, do something different than work for these owners. Uh, You would think that would be a good thing, but it wasn't. When her owners saw that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. When they had brought them before the magistrates, they said, these men are disturbing our city. They are Jews and are advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to adopt or observe. The crowd joined in attacking them, 
And the magistrates had them stripped of their clothing and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had given them a severe flogging, they threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them securely. Following these instructions, he put them in the innermost cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. This is a, an image of what might have been uh, a, one of the places uh, that would have been that cell, that would have been a cell like that where they were contained and shackled. There was no way for them to escape. And understanding that the jailer put in uh, responsible for them, if, if for some reason they escaped, it would be his life on the line, not theirs. So here's Paul and Silas who have encountered Lydia and been uh, talking to people about the good news of Jesus, the freedom that's ours in Christ, the salvation, that wholeness, that life that is ours in Christ. And for doing the right thing, they are beaten and humiliated and put in prison. Our call to suffer isn't about going and looking for pain and suffering. It's about being willing to suffer for doing the right thing. It's about being willing to understand that, that we serve a cause greater than ourselves. It's about putting Jesus first. Paul and Silas knew what it meant to suffer and to respond in that suffering in a way that might surprise you. Listen to their response. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Is that what you would be doing if you had been stripped and beaten and humiliated and thrown in jail in the innermost cell and shackled? Would you be praying and singing hymns to God? That's what Paul and Silas were doing. And the prisoners, the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was an earthquake so violent that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer woke up and saw the prison doors wide open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself since he, was suppo- since he supposed that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted in a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. The jailer called for lights, and rushing in, he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them outside and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They answered, Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. At the same hour of night, he took them and washed their wounds. Then he and his entire family were baptized without delay. There's the baptism piece again. These people that are now believers in Jesus, being baptized, being marked uh, by the water being named and claimed by God, as Lydia and her family were as well. Paul and Silas, when the earthquake happened, could have fled, along with all of the prisoners that had been in that jail. Paul and Silas stayed because it was the right thing to do for the good of the kingdom. Jesus first was how they spent that evening, understanding that their suffering that was inflicted upon them was not in vain. It was for something bigger than them. They stayed to be witnesses to God's love and God's mercy, to the gift of salvation, to the one who was holding them in jail. This call to suffer 
This call to suffer is, is not an invitation to go looking for pain and sorrow. It is a call to endure suffering as it comes as the cost of following Jesus. And following Jesus means that we love God with all of our heart, our mind, our soul, our strength, and we love others. We put Jesus first. We deny ourselves that false sense of who we are. We take up our cross daily and we follow Jesus. We let go of our agenda and we seek first the kingdom of God. This call to suffer is really about being willing to take that suffering when we're doing what Jesus asks us to do. And whether it is suffering that is part of our human condition, for we all know that, or suffering that is part of living a life set apart from God, our response to our suffering matters. Sometimes it's hard for us to know the root of our suffering. Sometimes the root of our suffering is simply because we live as human beings in this broken world. I don't think that God causes our suffering. I want you to hear that. I don't think God causes our suffering. I don't think God singles people out and says, I'm going to make you suffer and you suffer and you suffer. But God does allow the suffering that comes out of the brokenness of our world. Sometimes our suffering is just because the world is broken. And sometimes our suffering is because we're doing the right thing and letting go of ourself in order to follow Jesus. No matter what the root of our suffering is, what matters is our response to our suffering. Why does our response matter? Because in our suffering, no matter what the root of our suffering is, often we can't change the immediate circumstances that cause our suffering. Whether it's a diagnosis or a betrayal or a broken relationship or the death of a loved one or a lost job or a tragedy in a natural disaster or some kind of accident, we don't have control over changing those events. The only thing that we have control over is our response to those events. And I don't think God asks us to deny the suffering. I don't think God asks us to pretend that life isn't painful. I don't think that God asks us to not ask the questions to try to help us understand the suffering. I think God welcomes all of that. I do think also that God invites us to remember that we are not alone in our suffering. Whatever form that takes, we're not alone in our suffering. That's what Paul and Silas knew sitting in that jail cell. They knew that God was with them, and they knew that God would sustain them. We know that God is with us. We know in our baptism as we're named and claimed by God. We know as the Spirit empowers us to live a life following Jesus, we can know that we're not alone. God is with us, not, not the cause of the suffering, but with us in the midst of whatever our suffering is. I think God invites us to remember that we're not alone, that God is with us, and that we're not alone because we're part of the body of Christ. The details of our suffering may be different. We don't have the same life experiences. 
But our suffering is our suffering. Our pain is our pain. And the body of Christ is present to help carry one another in our suffering, to help be Jesus to one another in our suffering. Our suffering as followers of Jesus doesn't ever have to be in vain. Paul would write this to the Corinthians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all consolation, who consoles us in our affliction, so that we may be able to console those who are in any affliction with the consolation with which we ourselves are consoled by God. God consoles us so that we can console one another. God is with us so that we can be with one another. For just as the sufferings of Christ are abundant for us, so also our consolation is abundant through Christ. If we are being afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation. If we are being consoled, it is for your consolation, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we are also suffering. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our consolation. When we are called to follow Jesus and called to go out in the name of Jesus, there comes this call to endure the suffering that comes from following Jesus in this world that wants nothing to do with Jesus. Our response to our suffering matters. We're in this together for one another and with one another and for the kingdom of God. Twelve years after Paul and Silas are freed from that prison in Philippi, Paul writes a letter back to the community of Philippi, to the church. We believe that Paul wrote it while he was in a Roman prison, writing back to the people of Philippi. I want you to know, beloved, that what has happened to me has actually helped to spread the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers and sisters, having been made confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, dare to speak the word with greater boldness and without fear. Paul understood that in following Jesus, there was a price to pay. And part of that, his suffering, was that price. And sometimes... It is ours as well. A few chapters later, he would write, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Are you able to rejoice even in the midst of suffering? Are you able to give thanks even in the midst of suffering? Paul's words to us here aren't words of empty encouragement. They're grounded in his own experience of suffering. His own experience of needing to know that God is near. His own experience of needing the peace of God to guard his heart and his mind. These words for us are filled with encouragement that come from life's experiences. Paul understood that the 
life he lived and the suffering he endured was really for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of the kingdom of God, his own willingness to let his sufferings and his trials be used by God for him to know that God was near, but also for others to know the power of God's spirit. I wonder where you are suffering today. I wonder what the suffering looks like for you today. Are you able to rejoice in the midst of it, to give thanks in the midst of it? And I wonder where you might be being called to suffer for the sake of God's kingdom. Are you willing to trust that you're not alone? No matter the cause of your suffering, no matter the root of your suffering, you're not alone. You're not ever alone. God is with you, and the body of Christ is with you. God will sustain you, and God will work in you and through you and through your suffering to reveal the love and the mercy and the grace of God to those who are hearing you and who are seeing you and who are encountering you. I promise that you don't have to go looking for pain and suffering. It'll find you. But are you willing for your response to be one that allows God to be glorified in the midst of it and allows God to heal you with God's presence and with the presence of the body of Christ. Our response to the suffering, to our suffering, to the suffering of the world matters for the kingdom of God. As you come to the table today, I invite you to remember that we come bringing our suffering to the one who suffered so completely and deeply for us. Don't forget that Jesus suffered, willingly suffered, that we might have life, that we might have abundant life and eternal life, even when we are called to suffer for the sake of the kingdom of God. I invite you to bring that suffering with you. Let it be found in the midst of the suffering Christ, who offers himself to us that we might know we're never alone, whatever our suffering is. Let the people of God say amen.